Let's pray again together. Father, we're grateful to be able to gather in this place today with your people. It's such a privilege and a blessing to be able to see each other face to face. Father, in this place, I pray now that your spirit would come. Would your spirit help me preach your word with power? And I pray that we could receive your word and see it for what it is, that it's life for us and that it is wisdom for us. And it is the means by which you will sanctify us and grow us. Father, come now and help us hear your word. Help us accept your word by faith in ways that will mold us and form us and shape us more and more into people who reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. So if you've ever read the book, uh, Salvation on Sand Mountain, it's likely a book you won't easily forget. Salvation on Sand Mountain. Have you read this book? came out back in the 90s. It's written by a journalist, a guy named Dennis Covington, who actually gets to know and he eventually befriends several people from a Pentecostal church in North Alabama, a church that so happens to, uh, in parts of the service, begin snake handling. Now, I was drawn to this book for a couple of reasons. One, it's actually not far from where I grew up in North Alabama, the setting of this church. But the thing about this book that really draws you in uh, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert, is that by the end of the book, the author himself really begins to be drawn into these very hypnotic worship services where he finds himself participating in snake handling uh, in these churches. And really the unstated theological premise that undergirds the whole bulk of this book is this notion that is far more mainstream in evangelical churches than snake handling, thankfully. This idea that the primary sign of the Holy Spirit's presence in my life is this intense, ecstatic, emotional experience. What we see today in our passage is uh, that the evidence of the Holy Spirit work in our lives is actually something very different from this intense, emotional, ecstatic experience. Rather, the sign of the Spirit's work is going to rest in our vital connection to the Lord Jesus, and that the work of the Holy Spirit is far more routine and also far more profound than what we may often think it is. According to the scriptures, every single Christian is defined by the work of the Holy Spirit in his or her life, whether you are aware of this or not. Every Christian is a Spirit-filled Christian. Every Christian demonstrates the power of the Holy Spirit in his or her life. No matter what your story is, no matter what you struggle with, these things are always true for you, for everyone who belongs to Jesus. Okay, so today we're going to dive into one of my favorite passages from Paul's letter to the Romans that teaches us all about the work of the Spirit in our lives. We're going to see is three things. We're going to talk about how we've been set free from the power of sin and joined to Jesus' saving work through the power of the Spirit. We're talking about how we've been empowered to obey and please God because of the presence of the Spirit. And finally, we're talking about our future resurrection from the dead. It's going to happen because we have the same Spirit of Jesus, the one who was raised from the dead as well. So what we're going to do is spend a little time unpacking each one of these three things this morning in God's Word. All right, so the first thing we see in our passage that we read about the work of the Spirit is that the Spirit sets us free in Jesus Our passage today begins with really one of the best summaries of the gospel that you can find in all the scriptures. This verse summarizes our entire Christian faith, that there is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. This statement of Paul's is really a summary of everything that Paul's been talking about for seven chapters in Romans. For seven chapters before our passage, Paul's been laying out the details of the gospel to this church at Rome. If you read Romans, you might remember that Paul begins by telling us that the world's greatest problem is not a social problem. The world's greatest problem is not a political problem. Now, the world's greatest problem is a theological problem, the problem of God's just judgment that is present in the world because of sinful human rebellion. Everything in our world that has gone wrong, everything that's destructive, every single thing in our culture that is bad can be traced back to people who are rebelling against God and refusing to listen to the truth that God has revealed through his world and through his word. And so the gospel is about God and Jesus and through the work of the Spirit reconciling sinful rebels to himself. It's about God pardoning people who stand justly condemned before him because of their sin. It's about God fulfilling ancient promises made to his people from the beginning of the world to decisively defeat the power of Satan, to crush Satan's head and defeat sin. The gospel is about God being faithful to all the promises that he made to his people for thousands of years, people like Abraham and David and so many others. It's about drawing broken people to himself and making them beloved sons and daughters and an eternal family where they will belong forever. It's about God's love transforming people over an entire lifetime through the work of the Spirit. And so all of these things, in one way or the other, can be connected to Paul's opening statement that we read, that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's also important to see that the Bible's starting point in teaching us about judgment and condemnation and justice is the truth that God's judgment actually matters more than anyone else's judgment on earth. This is essentially what Jesus himself says in Matthew's Gospel when he says, And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Of course, we would say on paper we believe this, but so often we, we don't live this way, do we? How we usually live live as if the judgment of men is really what matters the most. We often live in ways that place man's judgment over God so that we live for the approval and the praise of people rather than the approval of the infinite, eternal, and changeable God. I think I can easily prove to you that this is true. Imagine for a few moments you're going to have to stand and talk in front of a large group of people like I am today. Which of the following statements do you think you would find the most comforting, assuming that both of these statements are true? Either the statement that God loves you and he is for you no matter what, or the statement that says everyone's going to love what you say. Of course, our heads know what the right answer to this is, right? Of course, we know the answer is God loves us more than anyone else. That should be comforting for us, assuring for us. But I've ventured to guess that for most of us, myself included, our hearts would rather be assured that everyone will approve of you, everyone will love you, rather than finding comfort in the truth that God is for you. God's approval of you is eternally secure. But the Bible at every turn shows us how backwards this is. When we live for the fear of man, we are elevating fallen sinners to the place of God. And we ignore the judgment seat of the one who matters the most, the one who created heaven and earth, the Almighty One who holds 
all things within his hands. When we fear God more than we fear people, we begin to rightly see the world as it is, and we live for the approval that actually matters the most. Fearing God more than people means that we actually begin to love God and love people the way that we should. And so when we begin to see that God's judgment matters more than anyone else's judgment on earth, then we begin to let in the magnitude of what it means that God's righteous judgment for all our sins has already been rendered in Jesus' death and that you've received the verdict of no condemnation because of your sins. Because Jesus was judged in my place, I forever now have this verdict over my life, throughout my life, no matter where I go, no matter what I do. All right, so within these first, just this very first verse of our passage, we see this, another, another small but extremely important phrase, this phrase, in Christ Jesus, that shows up a lot throughout the New Testament. Paul says this verdict, this incredible verdict of no condemnation for you is only for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not for everyone on this earth. This little phrase, in Christ Jesus, is Paul's way of talking about the most important, one of the most important truths in the New Testament. That all of us have been united to the Lord Jesus. That his entire life, his death, his resurrection, they all determine who we really are. Jesus himself will say this in places like John 15 where he says that he is the vine and that we are the branches. And just as a branch only has life and is connected to the vine, so we only have life because we're connected to the Lord Jesus Paul's going to use this phrase all throughout his letters to help us understand, again, that your entire identity, who you really are, is all wrapped up in the fact that you belong to Jesus. So that his life is your life. His death, his resurrection is your death and your resurrection. God being united to his people, this was always the plan from the very beginning. The entire movement of redemptive history is about the eternal fulfillment of this reality of God being united to his people forever. You can think about in Genesis how we read about God's design for the first man and woman to be united together as one flesh in marriage, as husband and wife. We know that in Ephesians, Paul will say this is a profound mystery, but it refers to an even greater eternal truth about how Jesus and his church are united together in one body. Think about how the Bible ends. It ends with this glorious truth being displayed in this picture of a climactic wedding night with heaven uniting with earth and God being forever united with his people in a way that will inaugurate a new heavens and a new earth. All right, so after Paul proclaims that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he goes on to explain in verse 2 why exactly this is. He says that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what exactly does this mean? Early in Romans 7, Paul's referred to the law of Israel as a particular power that took advantage in order to produce death instead of life. Uh, because of sin, the sin basically invaded, right, God's law and took advantage of the law. So now it will produce death apart from the life-giving spirit. It's likely here in verse 2, our passage the law is going to refer to the same idea. It refers to a principle or a power. So this verse can really just as easily mean that the power of the Holy Spirit has set us free from the power of sin and death. 
We'll see this in just a few moments, that the whole point of the power of the Spirit at work in the lives of God's people is to enable them to obey God's good laws. At several points in Romans, Paul describes sin as a slave master, a power, an authority that dominates and controls all those who don't belong to Jesus. The Bible puts everyone on earth under just, you're in either one of two camps. Either you are under the power of sin and death, or you're under the power of the life-giving spirit. And there is nothing in between, according to the scriptures. The good news of the gospel, verses 1 and 2, is that Paul tells us that God, through Jesus and through the work of the Spirit, he's set prisoners and slaves free. In these verses, Paul's going to talk about really both the, the penalty and the power of sin. He talks about the freedom that God has purchased for us in Jesus. Paul's going to mention the penalty when he says there's therefore now no condemnation because of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. And then really throughout our whole passage, Paul's going to describe what the life of the Christian is going to look like now that we've been set free from the power of sin. This kind of life is one that is defined by the work of the Spirit and not your sinful flesh. One where we set our minds on the things of the Spirit and walk according to the Spirit, Paul's going to say. All right, so in verse 3, Paul's going to unpack for us how it is now we're able to live the Spirit-led life. What has God done specifically in Christ to secure a life for me that is now animated by the Spirit and not my sin? He says God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the laws might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So in verse 3, Paul's likely talking about the Mosaic Law, telling us that the commandments of the Bible alone, by themselves, apart from the Spirit, are not enough to save us from the just judgment of God that we deserve. Paul says here that God performs in Jesus what the law could not do on its own. In Jesus, God sent a sin-bearer, one who took on the flesh of humanity, one who subjected himself to the realm of suffering and death. Paul here in verse 3 walks this fine line of orthodox Christology that we have to be faithful to, telling us that Jesus took on the likeness of sinful flesh and God's just condemnation for sinners while still Jesus remains sinless, God's sinless, spotless, sacrificial lamb. So Jesus absorbed all our sins and his well-deserved condemnation in his body on the cross without himself committing sin. What this verse does is several things, but right off the bat it's obvious this verse puts a stake in the heart of moralism, something that saturates our Christian, pseudo-Christian culture around us. We know this, right? So many in the Bible Belt will reduce God's glorious gospel of grace to just trying hard, right? In your own power, in your own strength. Try to be a good person. Tragically enough, far too many people will wrongly try to build their life on to be a nice person, a good person, to just try to obey what God says. This truth that we as God's people, uh, this is the truth we have to proclaim to, to people all around us, to the sectors of our pseudo-Christian culture that says just try hard and be good and God will be pleased with this. We must proclaim the truth that our, our own strength, our own power has no ability to defeat the slave master. It has no ability to secure God's eternal favor um, instead uh, and, and be free from God's righteous judgment. 
We have to proclaim the truth that God graciously sent Jesus to do what we are unable to do, what we are unwilling to do, to live a life of perfect obedience and to die the death we deserve, a death where he not only gave up his life, but he received God's just judgment that our sins deserve. So in verse 3, Paul describes Jesus as God's perfect final sin offering that was prescribed in Israel's sacrificial laws. Paul's clear here that our greatest assurance that God has no condemnation now for us, it's going to rest in trusting by faith that Jesus has completely absorbed in his death the condemnation I deserve, that God condemned our sin in Jesus, sins that he willingly bore on our behalf. Uh, This truth of what Jesus has done for us in his death tells us several uh, crucial things that help us understand how do we live the Christian life. First, the voice of accusation and condemnation that you so often feel in your own heart and experience, this is not the voice of God. It's the presence of evil in your life. People of God, you have to see that Satan is called the accuser in the Bible for a very important reason. Because you will often feel the presence of evil in your life in a way that leaves you feeling condemned, in a way that leaves you feeling cast out or dejected, or basically just a chronic moral failure. But when we look to the gospel in faith, we begin to see that God is no longer the plaintiff bringing his charges against us as the accused. The plaintiff is Satan, and his charges ultimately have no power to condemn you. God and Satan are both interested in us seeing our sin, but we have to see that they're interested in us seeing our sin for very different reasons. God, through the work of the Spirit, wants you to see your sin because he loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. He wants to transform you through his resurrection power so that you are increasingly conformed more and more to the image of Jesus through the lifelong work of repentance and faith. But Satan's only interest in you noticing your sin is to fill you with hopeless shame so that you feel like a slave. The work of the Spirit will always show you the path forward to change in the midst of your sin. The presence of evil wants you to feel shame in a way that will only leave you lost in a maze of despair that has no exit out of it. The second thing about uh, Jesus' death for us I want us to see is that God's final sin offering given to us in Jesus shows us the heart of God's gracious forgiveness. It shows us the heart of God's gracious forgiveness. What Paul is saying about God's verdict of no condemnation has been rendered because of Jesus. What it really does is it gives us the mechanics of what forgiveness looks like in our Christian lives. Forgiveness is about absorbing someone's sin and also graciously releasing another sinner from the judgment that he or she deserves. Human forgiveness, obviously, it doesn't atone for someone else's sin, but it does seek to mimic the grace and the mercy that we find only in Jesus' atoning death for us. And what the scriptures do is that the scriptures repeatedly tell us that forgiven people are always people who have now been empowered to forgive, no matter how deep the pain goes from the wounds you receive from somebody else's sin. In forgiveness, what we do is we hold on to the person who has sinned against us, but we make the repeated choice to release their sin. 
We absorb the painful relational cost of someone else's sin and choose to offer the gift of loving reconciliation to someone whose actions have not merited any gift at all. And forgiveness is crucial. It's vital for us as believers. It's foundational in order to sustain any relationship in your life that matters, whether it's our relationship with God or anybody else. No marriage, no friendship, no meaningful relationship in your life at all will endure without people regularly giving and receiving this gift of forgiveness, a gift which is patterned after Jesus' own sacrificial death on our behalf. Okay, let's move on now and talk about another aspect of the work of the Spirit. What else do we see in our passage? The second half of verse 4 provides us with the perfect transition to what we're going to talk about next. We've seen in verses 1 through 4 that the Spirit sets us free in Jesus. In verses 5 through 9, we're going to see that the Spirit leads us in living for Jesus. The second half of verse 4 tells us that God judged my sins in Jesus with a glorious purpose in mind. This purpose of now enabling his people to live a different kind of life. A life that is led by the work of the Spirit instead of our sinful flesh. When Paul mentions the goal of God's salvation and Jesus' death, he states that God did this so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This tells us that while no, obviously no Christian lives a perfect life, the Bible does tell us we can live lives of faithful obedience that seek to follow the wisdom of God's laws. St. Augustine, he said this really well. He wrote this in a succinct way about God's law and God's grace. He says, law was given that grace might be sought. Grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. And so Paul's saying something very important about God's grace and our obedience to God's laws. While obeying God's laws can never earn our salvation, God graciously gives us his salvation to make us into people who are led by the Spirit to fulfill the things that God asks in his law. So a more succinct way of saying this is that we are not saved by our obedience, but we are saved for Spirit-led obedience to God. So starting at the end of verse 4 and going through verse 9, what Paul's going to do now is he's going to mention the power of the Holy Spirit in leading us to live for Jesus right now in the present. Jesus' death secured not only our forgiveness and the eternal favor of God, but secured our lifelong sanctification through the Spirit. The Christian's life in the present is dominated and directed and controlled by the Holy Spirit, according to the Scriptures. That's true for every Christian. That's true whether you feel it or not. That's true whether you see this with your own eyes or not. And this, of course, makes sense for everyone who belongs to Jesus When you read the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus lived his life under the direction of the Spirit. He was someone who was led by the Spirit in all things. He goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan because the Spirit led him there. We're told that Jesus casts out demons through the power of the Spirit, that the Spirit comes on Jesus at his baptism to now empower him for the work of ministry that was ahead of him. And so we see in our passage and throughout the New Testament is that because we we are united to Jesus, our life now is going to take the same spirit-led shape of his life. And what we see contrasted throughout this section in verses 5 through 9 are two ways of living. Either we live according to the flesh or according to the spirit. Paul mentions that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And that by way of contrast, those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. 
Now, this setting of the mind that Paul mentions in verses 5 through 7 doesn't refer to just the thoughts that we think, although it certainly would include that. It has to do with the entire direction of our will, our deepest desires. It includes our most cherished beliefs and the behavior that is going to flow out of those beliefs. Paul clearly states the totality of this contrast between those who are in the spirit and those who are in the flesh. So more or less he's saying that every person walks according to one or the other, orders his life according to one or the other, and sets his or her mind on one or the other. It's also really important when you read verses 5 through 7 to see that this is a contrast between Christians and non-Christians. In verse 5 through 7, Paul isn't commanding people to live either according to the flesh or to the spirit. He's describing things as they already are, as they actually are. All people live according to the flesh or the spirit. And again, there's no indication here you can do both in our passage. Sometimes certain church circles might refer to carnal Christians. Have you ever heard of this? People profess Christ but live in a sinful way that ignores their profession. But we have to see that according to the scriptures, there's really no such thing as a carnal Christian. It doesn't exist. Paul will later say in verses 8 and 9 that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But Paul tells the Roman church, people who mostly he never had never visited, that they're not in the flesh, but they're in the spirit. Now clearly that doesn't mean that Christians are excluded from serious battles, right, with our own sinful nature that still exists. This is what Paul talks about in Galatians 5, when he mentions that the desires of the flesh are at war against the spirit, this inner war that takes place inside of all Christians. But this inner war between flesh and spirit is something different than what Paul is saying in our passage today. And so in this section, uh, this truth that the work of the Spirit defines every Christian should be enormously encouraging for us. People of God, do you, do you understand what this is saying? That the most important aspect of who you are is not your sin. It's the Holy Spirit and His work in your life. The incredibly good news of what this is saying is that Christians, again, are not people who are defined and ruled by our sin. Another way to say this is that Christians are not people whom the Bible would describe as totally depraved. Reformed theology will typically use this expression, totally depraved, to describe our natural condition of people in our fallen, sinful state. And far too often in the church, we can wrongly assume that this is who we really are, even after we become believers. This is a theological mistake that I believe has enormous implications for how you live the Christian life. I've been a part of, of other Reformed churches in the past where I hear members say something effective, I can't obey God's laws because the Bible says all my righteousness is like filthy rags before God. That's a reference to the book of Isaiah where God confronts a wayward Israel about their sin, a reference that I, I think is misapplied to Christians far too often. Here's the, the problem with this. The problem with telling Christians over and over again that they are totally depraved and can't ever please God with their obedience, is at some point people are going to actually start believing this and living accordingly. And so in our quest as Reformed people to get the doctrine of sin right, what we can do far too easily is cut out the legs of our sanctification by the Spirit out from under us. This is a view of the Christian life that says there's nothing you can do to please your Heavenly Father. And in very subtle, subtly destructive ways, God begins to be presented as a cold, distant Father 
who finds no delight in the obedience of his children through the work of the Spirit. Children who can't ever please their parents will at some point just stop trying. And that is exactly the same truth that happens with God. So people of God, what Paul is saying in our passage, again, is that your sin is not the most dominant part of your life. Praise God. Instead, the Holy Spirit is the person who's the most dominant character at work in your life as a believer. Again, we don't often think this way and live this way, but it's completely true according to the Bible. This has enormous power to change how you think about yourself and how you think about other believers who have the same spirit that you do. Again, all in the name of having good theology, what we can so often do is subtly do the devil's work of heaping shame and condemnation and guilt on ourselves for our sin, and we convince ourselves in the process that this is how God views us, and this is how he wants me to view my sin. Far too often, as believers, we can confuse crippling condemnation with good, godly conviction over your sin. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us see our sin, but we have to again see the motivation behind that is always love for you. It is mercy for you. It is only the voice of evil in your own heart that attempts to tear you away from the assurance of God's everlasting favor that is yours because you are in Christ. In the face of our many battles with sin and temptation, God wants us to believe the truth about yourself, that our truest, deepest self is not the one who's defined by our sin, but it's who we are through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that is good news, people of God. It means when you fall, you can always get back up. When you foolishly stray away from your father's house, you can always go back home through repentance and faith. This means you are never a slave to your sin, no matter how intense the battle gets. And this is our greatest assurance, that every Christian has the promise and the hope of change. Because our lives are defined by the Holy Spirit, you can know for sure that we are all being transformed. We're all a part of this process of being renewed. Even when you're tempted to look at another Christian and see only their sin. We see that throughout the Bible that transformation is something new. This is what the Spirit is all about. And this is what he's done from the beginning of creation. Think about just before God utters the words of let there be light in Genesis The Spirit is there, we're told, hovering over the face of the waters. And so the role of the Spirit is always about God's work of creation, new creation, recreation. And that is exactly what God, through His Spirit, is doing in the life of every believer. That's what He's doing in your life. That's what He's doing in the life of every other Christian. Recreating you more and more into the person you were made to be in Jesus. So for those of us who belong to Jesus, this means, again, there's there's always the hope and the promise of change in your life, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter how intense the struggle in your marriage may be, no matter how deep the addiction feels like, any struggle you have, we always have the, the promise and the hope of change because of the Spirit. All right, people, let's move on. Let's talk about our final thing that we see in our passage today. Uh, We're going to quickly look at verses 10 through 11. This is our final thing about the Spirit that I want us to see. The final thing I want us to see about the work of the Spirit is God's promise 
of resurrection that he'll bring to our bodies. Paul says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So again, what exactly does that mean? When Paul says that our body is dead because of sin, obviously he can't be talking about our physical bodies uh, currently, but more likely he's referring to the fact that all of our bodies will be subject to death. We as God's people will not escape God's judgment on sin that was first given to Adam and to all of his ancestors. We will all return to the dust from which we were made, and we're going to feel the sting of belonging to Adam's sinful race. But what Paul wants us to see is that for every Christian, because of the life we have through the Spirit, we will triumph even over an enemy and a foe as great as death. Because of the righteousness that we have been given as a free, gracious gift in Jesus, we're assured that the Holy Spirit will be able to undo something even as terrible and powerful as death. This is one of the many places in the Bible that you really see that because of God's promises given to us in Jesus and the Spirit, we don't have to be afraid of death. Because His power has been defeated in Jesus' resurrection and the subsequent promise that God will raise us from the dead as well, really the fangs of death, according to the Scriptures, They've been ripped out. The unbelieving world works very hard to have us avoid thinking about death. Even in our culture right now where we are saturated uh, with uh, headlines of sickness and death. The poet T.S. Eliot said this perfectly when he said, Humankind cannot bear very much reality. So what our modern world does is it constantly attempts to fill our lives with endless amounts of distractions and other things to help us forget this inescapable reality that death is real and it's coming for us all. And God certainly would not have us be stoics in the face of death. Death is a terrible thing that we can and should grieve. We can be honest about its effects in our lives and in the lives of people we love. But only Christians have the strength to tell the truth about dead, about death, and to view it as an enemy that's already had its back broken. Because we have the promise of resurrection, because of Jesus' own resurrection, we can boldly proclaim what Paul says in another one of his letters. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? So in our final verse today, Paul's going to point us again to the work of the Spirit, telling us that our future resurrection is linked to Jesus' own resurrection by the working of the Spirit. He says in verse 10, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Once again, Paul puts a spotlight on the work of the Spirit, assuring us that if the Holy Spirit raised Jesus, Jesus from the dead, then He will certainly do the same thing by raising our own bodies from death to life. So our future resurrection of the dead can really be understood as the culmination of the Spirit's lifelong work in us of restoration, of recreation. People of God, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is God's ultimate pledge to you. That his life and work in you, it will triumph over your sin. It will triumph over the death and the decay that touch every part of our world. People of God, God really is in the process of making all things new, and you are a part of this process right now. Whether you feel it or not, whether you see it right now with your own eyes or not, it's true. It will always be true for you. And faith gives us the ability to look beyond the things that we see right now. 
It gives us the ability to look beyond our present suffering, beyond the struggle and brokenness of our current life in this fallen world. And we can see the glorious future that awaits us. A future where the Holy Spirit will give us a body that will never again get sick. It will never again suffer. It will never again struggle. A body with our own eyes, our own new eyes. We're going to see the risen Lord Jesus face to face. And in that day, the Spirit's sanctifying work in our lives, it will be done. And God will be finished completing His work of preparing His bride to be forever united with her husband. And we will forever glory and we will marvel in the finished product of God's redemption in our lives and in our world. And our entire lives from that point on throughout eternity, it will be a never-ending song of praise where we sing the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the work of the Spirit. Father, give us eyes to faith to see uh, the Spirit in our, in our lives and what he does. Father, I pray that throughout our service you continue to minister to us, to draw us close, uh, close to yourself. And Father, by your Spirit, would you continue to strengthen and empower us to be the people we were made to be in the Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.